0: Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel 7. We've been studying God's servant David, his ups, his downs, his good times, his bad times. There's more to come. We're not going to cover every paragraph or every chapter. Uh, we Actually, there's quite a lot more that we could cover, and it will be abridged. But I want to look at the beginning of this chapter, Second Samuel 7, today. Listen to God's Word. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and so they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God." Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you and no God besides you according to all that we have heard with our ears. And this is God's holy word. I've been somewhat of a longtime parent and grandparent more recently for a number of years that the oldest grandchild's in college. So I think I have a little bit of experience from which to say God has made me wiser than I used to be in the whole subject of parenting. I became a parent when I was barely 22. And I would admit there was an awful lot I didn't know that I wished that I did know. As a pastor, too, I've had an education in parenting. As I've watched church families in many different congregations, I've seen some very outstanding examples of families growing together, parents doing right things. And I have to confess to you, I've seen some really great family disasters as well. I firmly believe one principle that's at the core of things, it's not the be-all and end-all, but it is pretty important. The principle that has to be established very soon with a young child, getting it established well before school years is absolutely essential. And that is the principle that says to the child in various ways, mom and dad are in charge and they have authority that must ultimately be obeyed. Now, that does not have to be administered dictatorially or harshly. It can be conveyed with great love, but it has to be conveyed. And I find one way you can find out how a parent or family group are doing on that is just observe what the word no, very important word. What does the word no mean even to a toddler, to a three-year-old? You can see examples of this all the time out in the, the shopping mall. You just sit down in a bench in the concourse and watch the folks go by and watch folks with families and observe the dynamics. Maybe in the grocery store or somewhere else you'll see it. There's a mom who is able to say no, and maybe she gets a little bit of pushback But little Jimmy's been taught that with this mom, no does mean no. And along comes the next shopping cart with another three-year-old and little Sally who hears that no means time for negotiation. Mom, we will now negotiate. I will whine. I will put on a tantrum. I will make your life miserable because I know that if I do that long enough, you'll get upset, but you'll also give way partially or maybe even all the way to me. And believe me, what little Sally's exercising becomes near disaster by the time she's 14 or 17 or 19. I ask the question, what does no mean to us when it's God our Father who says it? to grown-up, supposedly mature Christians. You know, we'd have to admit that even mature believers' prayers contain bargaining games with God. Am I hearing you right, God? You know, I asked you for something that was perfectly good. It wasn't even selfish. It was for my whole family's benefit or or maybe even to win the loss to Christ. And, and I can't see how that could be a bad request but you're not answering. You're not giving it. Why are you saying no to me? Can't we negotiate somehow? You may not say it that boldly, but we do say it, don't we? Some people conclude that prayer doesn't work every time they don't see the candy bar, you know, the old good old candy machines. Before they were even electronic, you put your Probably nickel in those days, in. You don't get anything for a nickel today, as you well know. But you put it in and you pull the lever, and clunk, clunk, down comes the candy bar. And if you wanted a Hershey bar and a Clark bar falls down, you're not happy. Well, some people are like that with prayer. They think prayer is a vending machine. And when the Clark bar appears instead of the Hershey bar, God, what are you doing? This isn't what I asked for. Can't we work this out? And they go away and maybe say, prayer doesn't work. You don't get what you want. Can we learn that there's a loving Father saying no in a whole host of ways, sometimes by silence, sometimes by very openly negative circumstances that show us we're being denied. But He's showing us, even in His denials, that His will is being worked out. And knowing how to respond to this is a crucial part of Christian growth. King David gives a wonderful, and this is one of his good moments, wonderful example in 2 Samuel 7, where he models how to respond to a divine refusal. I ask you to believe today that God often has as much to teach us by his denials as by his permissions. Let's look at it a little bit here. First of all, I want you to see as we study this text that David seeking something great for the glory of God. That's the perfect timing in his life for this particular thing. The enemies are rather quiet. The borders are fairly secure. David's kingdom has made progress since we last checked in, and he has the ability to concentrate on internal government. We saw him bringing up the ark to establish the worship center at Jerusalem last time. And he, he fumbled the ball there a little bit, but then he got it right. So now David looks around and he's a man thinking of God, not just thinking of himself. And apparently he's had a pretty nice house built for him in Jerusalem in between. We don't have an exact record of that, but here just saying, I'm now living in a house of cedar, tells us that something fairly nice has been built for David. And he's immediately thinking to himself, not I'm the greatest king in the world, I deserve the greatest palace. He's always thinking of God, the greater king. So he's saying, well, wait a minute, I've got this really nice lodging place, but God's ark is just in a tent, this old tent that that got dragged around in the wilderness for so many years and, you know, it's pretty tired out and worn now and we have to keep repairing it. Can't we get something nicer to house the ark of God? And he must have mused over these things with Nathan, who, by the way, is introduced for the first time here. He'll have a significant role later on. Nathan the prophet, a man through whom God spoke in various ways. And Nathan has no wisdom to the contrary. He says, great idea, king. Why not? You've got a good thing on your heart. Go ahead. Well, what we learn here in Second Samuel 7 is that it was not the Mannheim Township Zoning Review Board that called a halt to David's temple plans. He didn't have one of those boards, apparently, to worry about. He didn't have to face 252 inspections of every aspect of the construction. You might guess that some other folks did have to do that. Uh, no. But God reveals to Nathan the prophet overnight wait a minute you didn't consult me when you told david go ahead and i have other ideas and it comes mostly in the form of a question which nathan comes to feel so strongly is being spoken by god to him not necessarily by an audible voice but god just gripped the heart of this prophet and said i want you to go tell david thus says the lord ask him this question Did I tell you I needed a house? Do I look like the homeless God? I'm doing all right, David. I authorized the place where my ark is today, many years ago, to Moses to build that tabernacle. I haven't asked for anything but a tent of skins to house my symbolic place of dwelling. You also see here David is not necessarily denied this temple-building dream because of any specific sin in his life. We do have examples where people, significant leaders, were denied for those kinds of reasons. You remember Moses. For all his greatness, for all his obedience to God, that, that time of just losing his temper, sort of stamping his foot, you might say, in a manner of speaking, when the Lord asked him to quietly obey and Moses was forbidden from going into the promised land that he had spent 40 years leading people toward. A few of you from this church stood with me in 1997 on Mount Nebo, looking across gray hills to the west where you can see that promised land and how stirring it is to think this is where Moses died. He saw it in the distance, but he wasn't allowed to go in. He, he pleaded with the Lord. He said, Lord, can't we change the terms? Please forgive me. I, I was wrong. And the Lord said, Don't speak of this anymore. And Moses died there, within sight of the land, but he did not go in. Well, it's not anything like that for David here, at least not stated in this moment, anyway. There is something to inform us later on. If you would read in 1 Chronicles 22 8, David is an older man there, talking with his son Solomon, who did build the temple. And Before his death, David, the older man, told Solomon this, the word of the Lord came to me that I should not build a house to his name because I was a man of war who shed much blood. Apparently, God had revealed that more of a reason along the way when he reflected on it. But he didn't know that now. All he knew in this hour of announcement was, no, I haven't asked for you to do that. And if you want to be my man… Responding to my heart, then wait and listen to my instructions instead of imposing things that you think are my instructions. And so, even in this time of peace, with a good intent on his heart, it wasn't David who would build. And the Lord revealed in this chapter, as I read it, that it would be someone from his body, a son of David, who would. And we know, of course, that that was Solomon. Well, secondly, I'd ask you to consider, though, even though the Lord refuses David here, how graciously God turned the tables around on this in verses 11 to 13. God's denial was a firm denial. You won't do this. I didn't ask for it. But it was still full of grace. Think about the greater thing that God intended to be done. In brief, the Lord said, look, You intended to build a mere house for me, I'm going to turn the tables. I'm going to build a dynasty for you. Not a piece of architecture, but a house of the living sons and grandsons and great, 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 great grandsons out of your body that will be such a dynasty that it is implied here fully, and I'll say in just a moment, that that dynasty is going to reach all the way down to your greatest son, Jesus Christ and I'm going to build a throne for this dynasty to inherit that will actually last forever. This is a tremendous statement of what we call the covenant of God. The covenant has different announcements. So We have the Abrahamic announcement when, when God told Abraham, you'll be the father of a nation so plentiful it'll be like the stars or like the sand on the seashore. That's the Abrahamic announcement of the covenant. We call this the Davidic Announcement of the covenant God telling david i 'm going to establish your throne and there 's going to be someone on this throne for all time forever i 'm going to build a living house, a living kingdom, and i 'm going to dwell there for all time now there 's really interesting language here in verses fourteen and and fifteen or so uh, where the person who's going to sit on this throne is referred to in a singular pronoun, he. So you think, well, it's talking about one person for sure. And so you might gather up as you read this because the person isn't named. Well, it's it's talking about Solomon who did build the temple. He shall build a house for my name, verse 13 says, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. But wait a minute, how long? Forever? Solomon didn't reign forever. But then singular pronoun, again, I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. But then when he commits iniquity, oh, well, that has to be a sinful human being. I will discipline him with the rod of men and the stripes of them. Who is this talking about? There's a very interesting prophetic device going on in these verses where it, it is indeed a singular reference, and it does indeed in part refer to Solomon but it also has a farther off in the far distance reference to Christ. The one and only thing that cannot refer to Christ in these verses is the uh, the statement that when he commits iniquity, as of course Christ did not, Solomon did. This is referring to a whole line of sinful kings that will come out of David's family line that we can easily trace. And what a tragic, topsy-turvy history it is as two kingdoms divide, and Israel and Judah, and you maybe know a little bit about all that. There were good and bad and evil and righteous kings, obedient and disobedient. But God took that throne line all the way through Solomon, all the way up to Christ. God rejected David's sketches. You know, I imagine David probably had some sketches. He probably knew what he wanted this temple to look like. And God said, put your sketches aside. You're not going to do it. Your son is. And yet he affirmed and blessed his servant for having this great desire and wanting to do it. But in effect, he was saying, David it's not a building that I'm interested in. I, I am not like the pharaohs of Egypt. Remember the monomania in the mind of the pharaohs? You know, here you have some guy, let's call him Thutmose the 13th or something like that. I don't know if there was… Thutmose was a real name for a pharaoh, but I don't know if there was a 13th or not. But here, here's Thutmose, and he's spending most of his entire life, starting at age 20 when he becomes pharaoh, I need a bigger pyramid than Thutmose the 11th. So get going, slaves. Get going, architects. I want the most dominating pyramid on the landscape. And you know you can go visit those today, these unbelievable constructions, the sphinxes and the things that the pharaohs built, just amazing constructions. And they've lasted for centuries and centuries and are probably going to be there as long as man walks on this earth. And yet, who goes there and says, oh, yes. I remember the greatness of Thutmose the 13th. What a wonderful guy. Who knows today or cares who Thutmose was? Nobody. His monument outlasts him, but he's a nothing in the annals of history. God is saying, I'm not interested in architectural monuments that far outlive some ruler who wasn't that great to begin with. I'm interested in The living dynasty of those who rule and will eventually come under the rule of the human house that I will dwell on in this earth, the body of Jesus Christ, and that body crucified and resurrected. The house and lineage of David is a phrase we pick up that is not about architecture, it's not about pyramids, it's not about statues. It's about the living presence of God on earth, ultimately in His Son, the greatest Son of David of all of them. Now, with those understandings in place, we can thirdly come to ask ourselves some application here. How, then, should a believer respond to any divine refusal? Because David does a great job, magnificent, starting in verse 18. You see his prayer. It says he went in and sat down. Where did he sit down? It isn't specified. You think it must have been probably the tabernacle, which was a place for prayer, a center for prayer. He didn't go to his bedroom and lock the door and cry in his pillow or shake his fist at the skies. He sat down before God. And having seen a refusal, in effect, to prayer, he says, what I need is more prayer. You see, some people don't get what they want out of prayer, and they walk away from prayer. It says prayer's no good. Prayer doesn't work. David said, "I need more prayer to understand what I hear here. This negative thing that God is giving me." And he prays this magnificent, humble prayer that starts out with a great beginning that any prayer could begin with. Lord, who am I? How often do you pray and begin with anything like that, Lord? Who am I anyway? You know, I think I'm pretty great. Uh, And let me tell you how great I am, Lord, and why you owe me some… No. Who am I that you've done this? Who am I? I was the least of the tribes of Israel, and I was the least of the sons in my father's house. And when the prophet came looking for a king, my father paraded my older NFL linebacker brothers out in front of the prophet, because surely one of them was going to be the king. And they forgot about me. I was the puny runt out there with the sheep. Who am I that you have blessed me in this marvelous way, Lord? That you would even deign to give me an answer to my desire to build a temple for you? Oh, sovereign Lord. Lord, you don't know what the word sovereign means, don't you? The Lord who rules in an unquestioned way. I don't question your rule. I bow before it. When I was a boy of about 11, I think I was in Little League and always wanted to be an outfielder because I always liked the place where you had the longest amount of time to let the ball get to you, you know. You don't want to be in the infield where you've got to handle the sharp line drives. I didn't have instincts that good. I tried to lope around in the outfield and get where the ball was going. But in my 11-year-old little league, they said, we need a catcher. Rogers, you're one of the biggest guys. Here's a catcher's mitt. Ooh, I didn't think I liked this very much. But then I tried it for a while, and, you know, it wasn't so bad being a catcher. I kind of got to doing it, and I was using the team's catching mitt. And I thought about asking my mom and dad. It was past my birthday, unfortunately. I thought, maybe we could buy a catcher's mitt and I'd have my own. Well, our family didn't have money to waste on two baseball gloves. My mom would say, you've got a baseball glove. What do you need another one for? So I didn't get a catcher's mitt. But, you know, let's imagine David was asking God for a catcher's mitt just for illustration purposes. David didn't get a catcher's mitt, did he? What God gave him instead was a baseball stadium and a professional league team to play in it. So much better than what he asked to have. You know, I see this anticipating a New Testament text that's so important, Philippians two, twelve and 13, when Paul talks about working out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and and to perform. David, you, you just… you're too puny to even guess about the great things I want to do. You don't even know enough to ask for things of the dimension that I, your God, want to do. Think of what Jesus said in Matthew 7, as far as a father giving gifts to an obedient praying son or requesting son. Jesus said in Matthew 7, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? If he asks for a fish to eat, would he give a a scorpion to bite him? And Jesus said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, three important words, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? God was giving David a good gift by not letting him build the temple and saying, I'm going to build something else, a house, a lineage, a kingdom for myself through you. He didn't scold David for asking. He didn't say, you never should have asked me this. I don't hear that tone. But he did say, you're not going to do it. Your son is going to do it. And later on, again, looking back on this, 1 Kings, a later book, 1 Kings eight eighteen, has Solomon's voice saying this, The Lord told my father David, it was good that you had it in your heart to build me a temple. It was good that you had it in your heart. I bless the thought. I bless the goal. And from that, we surmise that God's approval was on what David did. He said to himself, look, Unless God forbids me, he's, he has forbidden me from building, but he has said the temple's going to be built and my son's going to do it, therefore, I could be useful. And we know what David did. He went about the neighboring kingdoms, he went down to Lebanon, bought the finest cedar wood, he went to other countries that quarried stone, marble, granite, whatever, went to countries that had artisans and skilled workers and brought them in guess what? When Solomon was ready to go, the whole yard was stocked with supplies and skilled workers to do the job. David was willing to accept even a lowly secondary role subservient to his son because it was in line with what God was doing. I say God has as much to teach us by his denials as by his permissions. Denials, young people, that might mean you don't get into your first choice or even your second choice college. Denials that might mean single person, you're aching and wondering and praying and looking for a long time with who's my spouse going to be, where's the woman I want to marry, where's the man I want to marry, and you think you found them and the relationship breaks off and God seems to say no and you're bitter about it. Denials that say you didn't get the step up in the company or the advancement or the better job, you can apply this all over the place. The things that we aspire to, that we want, that we seek after, many of them worthy things, not sinful things, and they just don't come. And we're disappointed and and think, God is punishing me. What did I do wrong here? Is it possible we can believe that God teaches us by denials as well as by permissions. If you think that would be a hard way for God to work, let me just give you the supreme example that's very timely and seasonal. Think of Jesus in the garden called Gethsemane. When He asks something with such earnestness, such passion, such strength of desire as He sweat there in that garden and groaned audibly and said, Father, isn't there some other way? Please, there must be. Show me another way to do this. And the Scripture says God said no to his son. And Jesus went resolutely forward obeying his father, humbly bowing to his father and believing that his father knew what he was doing, believing that his father was saying in so many words, saying really with his silence, son, I do have a plan here. And it charts a better way than what you can know how to ask for because it's a way that will benefit millions and millions of other people. God's will is revealed in denials as well as in permissions. When he refuses one of his true children, he does it with gentleness and grace. And you can believe that he's doing it ultimately for your good because that's who he is. Let's pray together. Father, each of us could think of ways in which our plans, desires, prayer requests have been blocked somehow maybe years and years ago and we're still holding a grudge towards you about it. Maybe very recently, maybe still coming up, something we haven't even thought to seek yet that we're not going to receive. Father, teach us a Davidic trust to sit before you and say, O oh Lord, who am I? that you, the sovereign king of the universe, would notice me. And I will bow, and I will go forward with what you reveal, both by your denials and your permissions. And seek your glory, and be thankful all my days. For Jesus' sake, amen.